And if you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me. We're coming to the end of our journey through Matthew. So we're going to be in the end of Matthew chapter 27 and look at chapter 28. And as you do, I want you to think about how all of life is... I mean, it's decision-making. It's uh, taking opportunities, looking at the opportunity cost, everything you say yes to, you're saying no to something else and weighing what's more important, what's more valuable. And uh, one of the challenges that my children have is weighing the decision of uh, who are they going to ride with? Are they going to ride with mom or are they going to ride with dad? Now, the pros and cons to each. See, you ride with dad and the chances that you're just going to happen to swing into Sam's for like an icy float or stop by the McDonald's drive through for an ice cream are exponentially higher. <laughs> but what it's going to cost you is you have to listen to talk radio. <laughs> Because, I mean, we have a rule in our house. It's like, and I don't know where this came from. Maybe you need to see counseling to why I think this way. But the driver determines the radio. So if you're driving, that's your role and responsibility and privilege to control the radio. So if you're riding with Dad, it's talk radio. It's sports or it's news. So, is, I mean, is the ice dream cone worth sports or news? And, uh, in fact, my nine-year-old Annabelle, when she gets in the car and hears Colin Cowherd, he's a sports talk radio announcer, when she hears his voice, she's starts to squirm and say, his voice makes my entire head hurt. And I was like, sorry. And, but about six months ago, I almost had to swear off talk radio because I felt like every time we would get in the car, I was having to try and explain something that was almost unexplainable. So for a couple of weeks, we're sitting there like sports talk radio and they're talking about whether the Holocaust really happened and whether the earth is flat or not. And I'm like, why, why are we talking about this on sports talk radio? Just tell me, who won the game? And then we'd flip it over to the news, and all of a sudden you hear the news. Oh, well, uh, was, was the coronavirus constructed in a lab? Was the, uh, was the election stolen? What's dad? What's the insurrection? And we're trying to answer all of these questions. It's like this whole series of conspiracy theories. And it just made me wonder, you know, if you're going to survive in life right now, you almost have to be a detective, you have to be an amateur sleuth where you hear a story and you make sense of, uh, try to make sense of that story. And I guess for parents with young kids, I mean, that's nothing new. You spend half your life trying to unravel stories where it's like, I, how did these frogs get into the bathtub? Uh, they just, can't, they open the door themselves. Is that how? And one of the things, when we look at the resurrection, what Matthew intentionally does for us is he holds up two stories. And he says, all right, here's the facts. Everybody agreed there's a fact that on Friday, a man was placed in a tomb just outside the city of Jerusalem, and on Sunday, he's not there. And so you have to determine, like, how did that happen? And there's kind of two stories that rise up, uh, and you have to ask yourself, which story do you believe? Which story do you believe? So everybody has to be kind of an amateur Sherlock Holmes to, to uh, make it through life. And maybe one of the advantages is Sherlock Holmes wasn't actually trained as a detective. I know he's a fictional character, but as a fictional character, he wasn't trained as a police officer or a detective. He actually was trained as a medical doctor. And one of their primary textbooks that he trained was the elementary laws of logic. And he was trained, you know, fictionally at a hospital called St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And they were world-renowned at the turn of the century of creating some of the sharpest minds in all of the, the British, British Isles. And one of their famous teachers, Lord Horder, he said that most men spend their days lost in useless reverie. 
And he said, this is like 1904. And he says, that useless reverie in which the untrained mind spends the greater part of its life, that reverie can, with discipline and habit, be changed into an alertness, an awareness that will allow one to really see the world. So part of what Sherlock Holmes would say, all right, if you're going to be a great detective, there's just, there's three basic steps. You have to learn to observe. You have to see. You have to go through life with your eyes open and you have to notice things. Then you set up your two, your hypotheses, and then you just kind of start asking them questions. And that's all being a detective is. So let's look at the story of the resurrection that Matthew gives us, because he's going to hold up two, two accounts. And let's just ask, all right. Did it happen? What happened? Whose story do we believe? And then, so what? Why does it matter? What does it actually mean? So we got two different accounts of the resurrection. Let's look at the first account. And the first account, the first story comes from the guards and the religious leaders. You can see their story. We'll look at chapter 27, verse 62, and then pick up the tale in chapter 28, verse 11. So the next day... That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, kind of spoiler alert, alert uh, it doesn't work. And so we'll come back there, but look how they respond in chapter 28, verse 11. While they were going, this is the guards who are now fleeing from where the empty tomb is. They go, while going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So story number one comes from guards, religious leaders. Now, kind of pull out your corn pipe and your tweed hat and channel your inner Sherlock Holmes. And the first thing you want to do is, all right, let's just observe. Let's observe what's happening. Kind of notice who the characters are. So it's the next day, it's the chief priests, the Pharisees, they gather before Pilate, they get soldiers. You know, who are they? You know, these have been Jesus' opponents pretty much from the very beginning. They've uh, been his antagonist, antagonizing him and his ministry almost from day one. They're the ones who in the chapter, or a few verses before, were mocking him when Jesus was on the cross. And they're saying, come down from there. Then we'll believe you. Come on down if you think you're the son of God. And then these are the ones who in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, even if somebody comes back from the dead, you won't believe. And I say, oh, yes, we will. Show us a sign. He said, all right, here's your sign. I'm going to give you a sign. Just like Jonah was three days buried in the heart of the, uh, a whale, I'm going to be three days buried in the heart of the earth and then come back. So here's a sign. I'm going to come back. But even when you see that, you are not going to believe. And then a couple things just to notice. Notice what day it is in 62. The next day, 
That is after the day of preparation. So that's the day of preparation is preparation for the Sabbath. This is on the Sabbath. And this isn't just any Sabbath. This is the Sabbath of the Passover week. This has been the largest uh, Sabbath celebration in all of Israel. And kind of notice where they are. They are meeting with Pilate and the Roman soldiers. Now, you kind of have to hear that. It's kind of like if I started telling a story about uh, one Easter morning when I was out playing golf. And you might say, well, like, I know you like to play golf, but aren't you normally kind of busy on Easter morning? Isn't that part of your job? Think, oh, that's interesting. Why are they there? Then you think about all the Sabbaths that have ever happened throughout the history of the world and that dark Sabbath of a Saturday where they would go to the temple and perform their religious duties with the Son of God's blood on their own hands. But here they are and behind the scenes still meeting, conspiring. You know, the cynical might look at them because they were very critical of Jesus' activities on the Sabbath. Like, oh, you're healing. That's breaking the Sabbath. Your disciples are picking grain. That's working on the Sabbath. It looks like, doesn't this kind of look like a business meeting to you? You think, hmm, that's interesting. And then notice how they're full of worry and anxiety. They're worried that the disciples are going to come and steal the body. And you think, have, have you seen them recently? Well, no, actually, you haven't seen them recently because they all have scattered and are hiding. So why are you worried about them? And then notice in chapter 28, this is interesting that the first people who actually hear the news that Jesus has resurrected are the chief priests and the Pharisees. The guards go straight into Jerusalem, find them and tell them. And it's interesting because in verse 11, it just says they reported what happened. I would love to hear that report. But they report what's, what has happened, and they do not believe. Actually, they believe the facts, but it doesn't change how they view Jesus. They don't cross-examine the guards. They don't say, wait, 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 okay. What? An angel? Okay. The tomb's empty? Okay. Are you sure you were in the right place? What, was, was, what type of mushroom soup did you have last night? <laughs> They don't cross-examine. They take their story at face value. They believe the facts. And then notice this is kind of some of Matthew's humor and irony. They then are now paying to perpetuate the story that they were trying to stop in the beginning. Remember, they said, we have to put the soldiers and the guards because uh, the disciples will say that they've come and he's risen. And so uh, we don't want the disciples to steal the body. So put the guards. And then something happens. And now they're saying, let us pay you money. So you spread the story we didn't want to spread to begin with. And haven't you ever felt that like, times in life where it's like everything you do seems to be working against you? There was this meme that I used to love and would send to Cynthia four years ago, but it's like life with toddlers. It was like this mom who was doing things and the kid was going behind them and completely undoing everything that the mom was doing. And it's like, that's how life feels sometimes. You know, I used to feel like that in 2004 when I first moved to Florida. You know, this is pre-iPhone, kids. And you didn't have just GPS you could pull up. And I felt like I spent two whole months in a perpetual state of lostness. <laughs> 
And in Florida, it's doubly bad because you're lost and you have to pay to be on the roads that you don't want to be on to begin with and then pay to get off. It's like, here, I'm just shoveling money out the window, not knowing where I'm going. So I can sympathize with how frustrated they must have been. Here, we have to pay to stop this thing that we didn't want to happen to begin with. And then notice the guard's story. So let's kind of be Sherlock Holmes start peppering it with some questions. The story they set up is that while we were asleep, the disciples snuck in and stole the body. It's like, huh. I mean, so you were asleep, but you know it was the disciples. I mean, often people who are asleep aren't the best eyewitnesses to crimes. But you were asleep. Now, you were still asleep because there was an earthquake. And you slept through the earthquake? And then the giant stone that had its seal broken and then rolled away just kept snoozing right through that. It's been a long week, I guess. Just snoozing. Um, and then, like, in the one sense, why are you still here? Because part of the penalty, this is a capital offense. If this really happened, you'd be arrested and, hmm, that's interesting. And then, of course, I'm no, like, PR specialist, no crisis, public relations interventionist. But it does seem like um, the easiest way to deal with this whole scenario was when they say, the tomb is empty, he's not here, to go down to the tomb and hold up the body and say, yes, he is, here he is. So why didn't they do that? So you get down to the end of the story, it's like, hmm, it's an interesting story. Do you believe it? Do you believe them? How else do you explain that it's empty? It's intriguing. Uh, Chuck Colson, if you know that name, he was a, uh, a Nixon White House staffer who was one of the ones that took the fall for uh, Watergate and imprisoned and uh, was saved in prison, had this remarkable uh, ministry and just uh, incredible life. But one of the things that he would joke that uh, it was Watergate that convinced him of the reality of the resurrection. Because he says, I know what it's like to be around people with almost infinite power and infinite financial resources and then not to be able to control and stop a story. And so do you believe it? Now let's look at, let's observe the other story. Look at the women, the disciples, and just kind of observe. Look at chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly and from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. And then pick up the story in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So let's look at their story. You know, first just observe. It opens up, this is a real day, 
Uh, now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, with real people, this Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, you know, I'm, pre I'm pretty convinced, well, pretty convinced doesn't sound very convincing. I, I would give my uh, confidence level about an 83% confidence level that this other Mary is Jesus' mother. But it's interesting why Matthew refers to her as the other Mary. This is a side research hole that I didn't have time to go down this week. But I'd love to wonder why he calls it the other Mary. They went and they saw the tomb. But this is real day, real people, real place. It's not some fairy tale. It's not once upon a time in La La Land there was a magic fairy. This is real people, real place. You could, you could ask them. You could talk to them in the first century. You could go. There is an actual tomb that had a body in it that is now empty. And then notice it's the women... The women who are the first eyewitnesses. And this is intriguing because if they were making this up, they would not have made up the story with women as the first eyewitnesses. You know, in the first century, women were not eligible to testify in a court of law. Josephus said that the eyewitness testimony of women is not acceptable because of the levity and the boldness. And by boldness, he means like emotional exuberance of their sex. In the second century, Celsius was a, uh, he had this great debate with Justin Martyr and it became it's a, a, a wonderful illustration or window into how people in the Greco-Roman world view Christians. And he I was very skeptical and loved to poke fun and make fun of uh, believers. And he said one of the obvious things that uh, kind of undercuts the credibility of their resurrection stories is that it was women who testified first. You know, he mocked the idea that Mary Magdalene uh, was the first to allege that the re a resurrection witness, he referred to her as a hysterical female who's been deluded by her sorcery. And so in the first, second, third century world, just the fact that it's women testifying would have been a strike against it. Now, if you hear that as odd or strange or just wrong, you hear that as wrong because you've lived in a world that's seeped in the Christian gospel for so long. And we recognize that it is. But if they were just making this up, that would not be how you would make it up. And then notice, I think it's interesting how hard it is for the disciples to believe. Even though, like, Jesus told them he was going to do it, they still had a really hard time believing. And even the disciples, they are sitting at the mountain, they are looking at him, worshiping him, touching him, and they still doubt. Why? Because it's a hard thing to believe. We often think that the people in the ancient world were just these gullible, idiotic yokels who would believe anything. It's like, no, this utterly shattered their worldview. This is hard to believe. And then, of course, one of the key things is notice how they were transformed. You read the rest of the story, and they are utterly transformed. And it's interesting to think about how come all over the world right now, multiple billion people are celebrating the resurrection of a first century Palestinian peasant. Do you know who we're not celebrating? Give you a couple of names, see if you've ever heard or been invited to a party celebrating Menahem, the son of Judas of Galilee. Anybody uh, got a cake baked for Menahem? Who was he? He was actually a contemporary of Jesus who uh, was a, led a peasant revolt. Uh, he was claimed and heralded to be the Messiah. They actually stormed Herod's palace and took over his arsenal and held it for multiple days. You know why nobody is celebrating the movement of Menahem? Because he died. And then that was it. Or another Simon Bargoria. 
He was an uprising, led an uprising, a messianic uprising of the aristocracy, and they actually took control of Jerusalem for months until the Romans came in and killed them all. And then there's the big one was Simon Bar Kokhba, who was proclaimed the Messiah by Rabbi uh, Akba. And he had a huge following. And they actually took Jerusalem for three years and held it and started to mint their own coins. And on the coins was like year one of our great liberation until three years later, the Romans leveled the entire city. And you know what? No one celebrates that movement because he died. You know, when all these revolutionaries died, you either gave up the movement or you found another leader except for this one. Why did this one maintain its momentum and only grow? You have two stories. Which do you believe? You know, on the one hand, it's, it's elementary, my dear Watsons. How else do you explain it? How else do you explain this? But then now on top of that is, right, well, if it's true, if this happened, then what does it mean? What does it, why does it matter? And then what you see in chapter 28, the truth of the resurrection can transform your mind. The comfort of the resurrection can transform your heart. And the mission of the resurrection can transform your life. I mean, what does this mean? Well, what it meant for Jesus is it was proof of Jesus' messiahship. It was the coronation and transformation from servant of the Lord to Christ uh, the king, that now the prince of life is going to become the judge of all the earth. It was a seal of his divine sonship. It was a divine endorsement on his work as the mediator between God and man. It was God's amen on his it is finished. It's the beginning of his exaltation and rule where the father places in his hands all authority and all power to usher in the kingdom that he's going to give back to his father. Matthew and all throughout his gospel is telling the story about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the stories of the Old Testament. And so here this is the declaration that Jesus is the full and better. He's the new and better Adam who's forming a new people, a new humanity. He's the new and better Abraham who through him all the nations are going to be blessed. He's the new and better Moses who's bringing about a greater deliverance and giving a better law. He's the new and better David who has killed his enemies ultimate Goliath and is going to establish a kingdom that will never be shaken, never fall and never falter. That's what it means for him. And then what does it mean for us? For us, it's the guarantee uh, of our justification and our forgiveness. It's the fountain in which every good gift flows from heaven to his people. It's the pledge of our resurrection. It's the first fruits. It's the foundation of apostolic Christianity. Everything we believe, hope, love is all built on this foundation. It means that now he's our great high priest or uh, our great prophet who everything he speaks is life and truth and we can trust it and believe it and build our life on it. It means he's now our great heavenly high priest whose blood continually covers our sins and who is seated at the right hand of God the Father who makes intercession and defense for his people to stop the condemnations of the accuser when Satan loves to accuse the brethren and he gives the heavenly defense. It means he's now our heavenly king and he's ushering in a reign of grace and he will lead his people, he will guide his people, he will protect his people it means that he has come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. You know, what does it mean? 
So this story is not like other conspiracy stories. Like ultimately, you know, whether we landed on the moon or not, I don't know if how that matters. Maybe if you, you know, you work at, you know, NASA and can tell me why it's really important. Maybe it is. You know, I imagine this week if like I get diagnosed with terminal cancer, whether we landed on the moon or not, is not going to be comfort to my family. But this is. You know, think about right, what does this mean? You know, I think Sherlock Holmes would say, well, the truth of it is elementary, my dear Watson. How else do you explain it? The power of it, he might say, it's revolutionary, my dear Watsons. Have you experienced it? Let me close with just a couple, three stories that I've shared these before. People who experienced the power of the resurrection and what it meant for them. D.G. Barnhouse was a pastor of uh, Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, a very famous pastor in like 1950s, a Bible study hour and kind of strong radio presence. But early in his ministry, when he was in his 30s, uh, his first wife very unexpectedly uh, was killed. And he had two young girls. They were about six and four-ish. And it just devastated them, rocked their world. He was trying to figure out how to how to keep moving forward. And it was a couple days after the funeral. Uh, they were just sitting in the car, kind of on the Philadelphia road, and this big tractor trailer came kind of whizzing by, and it, it zoomed by their car, and it shook the whole car. And then he looked up back at the girls, and he said, girls, would you rather get hit by that truck or get hit by its shadow? And they said, oh, the shadow, Daddy. And he said, last week, two weeks ago, Mommy got hit by the shadow. Jesus on the cross got hit by the truck of death. So mommy got hit by the shadow. And see what the, the cross, the resurrection, gave him a foundation that they can then survive in any storm, any, any situation. Or another story, Joni Erickson Tata, if you know her life, uh, several years ago I was at a conference and she was sharing about just her story and she uh, she made this comment. She says, if you think this broken world is the only one you're ever going to have, then it's Easter. It's the doctrine of the resurrection that this world is going to be made new. That is the thing that can transform your life. And her story is that she was a you know, beautiful, vivacious 18-year-old living life to the full. Was out. This thing is like a summer camp and jumped into a lake to dive in. Uh, head hit the ground and became paralyzed from the neck down. And as she was trying to wrestle with the, what, that, that the reality of a life just shattered the next year was the first time she had made it back to church since the accident, and it was on Easter Sunday morning. And uh, she grew up Episcopalian, and part of the service is, you know, you kneel, you kneel to pray, and then you rise, you kneel. And sitting in her wheelchair, the first time the congregation was called to kneel, she says she just burst out into tears. You know, her joke is that I thought at that moment I might have to become a Presbyterian because I wouldn't have to kneel. <laughs> But then she said, as she listened to the prayers and heard the scripture reading on that Easter morning, it was Easter that saved her. Because she had been ruminating and thinking about all that was stolen from her life and all the things that now she would never experience. And she was particularly thinking about her wedding and all that she wouldn't be able to experience. And she said, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I will do is drop to my knees 
and bow at the feet of the resurrected Savior, then I will rise and I will dance. And she said, can you imagine the hope that resurrection gives to someone like me? And she said, I believe that all of my discontentment in life is fueled by thinking that this is all there is. And I just wonder if your discontentment today, if you have any, is fueled by thinking this is all that there is. All that I have now is all that I ever will have. All that I am now is all that I ever will be. The glory and the power of the Christian hope that's fueled on Christ's resurrection is that no matter who you are or what you've experienced, your best days are always in front of you. They're always coming. That's the power of what the resurrection means. And then the last one I'll tell you about are the those who wrote the final line of Amazing Grace. You know, this past summer we did a study on Amazing Grace, and it's such a beautiful uh, hymn that's constructed uh, that John Newton wrote uh, as a tool uh, for his congregation to help them uh, evaluate their life. And it's estimated that Amazing Grace is the most sung song in all of history. And one economist estimated that if John Newton got paid proper royalties for every time it was sung, his estate, he would be the richest man ever to live. So they estimate sung 10 million times per year. But you know, probably the, one of the most famous lines, he didn't write. You know, William Walker, who was a music teacher at a South Carolina in uh, 1820s, went and traveled around to the southern plantations, listening to the music and the songs of the slaves and writing them down. And he would hear often Amazing Grace would be sung, but then there was this line that he had never heard before and wondered where it came from. And it was that line, when we've been there 10,000 years. Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing of God's grace than when we first begun. See, that hope of resurrection victory gave them strength to make it through the most grinding poverty and, and oppression. This was their reality. Is it true? How else do you explain it? Does it matter? There is nothing in all of history that can transform your life like this. Have you experienced it? Every week at Trinity, we practice communion, and communion is the, the celebration of the Lord's victory. And as we think about it in the context of Easter, I want you to think about what each element symbolizes as a promise. You know, the promise of the broken bread, Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this bread represents my body broken for you. And the promise of the broken bread is a promise of wholeness. You can experience wholeness. Wholeness is coming. So no matter what area and element of life where you experience a fracturing, a breaking, his promise is a promise that wholeness can come and be yours. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. 
Not only is the resurrection the guarantee that those who trust in me, those who believe in me, those who love me, those who cling to me, that they will be made whole, but when they seek forgiveness, they will find it. And they will find forgiveness through my blood in my name. Lord, we praise you for the gift of the resurrection. We praise you for the reality. I pray that everyone here not only would know it conceptually, that they would know that this is true, but they would experience and feel its power. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.